We are in 1 Corinthians 10, and we will continue in 1 Corinthians 10 after the introductory comments. The introductory comments may take a while, but we will eventually get back to 1 Corinthians 10. I had an experience yesterday that was one of those providential lessons. I talked to Alex this morning about it, and he said, you have to share that with the congregation. And so I'm really only telling you this because Alex said so, and I do whatever Alex says, sometimes. (laughs) You've all heard me talk for many years about my blind friend, John. John and Chuck are two brothers who are both in their 60s now. John was born blind, and Chuck has limited, limited vision in his one good eye, and then he has a glass eye. John has been in the hospital since Monday. He, he had difficulty getting up the steps in the house where he's been staying. And that family has taken care of him, well, ever since his sister sort of abandoned the two boys. And they've done a good job of taking care of John and Chuck. But John can no longer negotiate the steps in the house and apparently fell down a couple of times. He now has a bladder infection. He's got a skin disease. He's got low blood sugar. He's got several things that are going on at once. And so they took him to the emergency room and he was put in the hospital. So I went to see him on Friday. The reason it took that long is he didn't tell me that he was in the hospital till Friday. So I said, okay, I'm going to come see you. Do you need anything? And he said, bring me some peppermint gum. And I said, okay, I can do that. I'll bring you some peppermint gum. So I went over to St. Thomas in Murfreesboro, where he's staying, and uh, went into the gift shop there, got some peppermint gum, went upstairs to see him, and he was out like a light. I mean, just sleeping, sawing logs. And so rather than wake him up, I left the peppermint gum there on his stand next to his bed and told the nurse this is his peppermint gum and I left. So Saturday I went back to see him. Now it's difficult to explain how I have watched John struggle the last few years. And his health has been getting worse and worse and the diseases are kind of catching up with him. And so there in the hospital he was a fairly pathetic person. And to give you some idea, I said, do you want to go for a walk? Let's go walk up and down the hallways. Now, when I walked into his room, there was a sign letting me know that he is a fall risk. I asked the nurse, is it okay to take him for a walk down the hallway? And she said, yes, as long as he's with you. And so I said, do you want to go for a walk? And he said, yes, but I need my my non-skid socks to do that. And I said, great, I'll put your socks on your feet. And his feet are kind of a mess now. So I was down sitting on the floor, rolling up the non-skid socks and getting ready to put them on his feet. And as I was rolling them up his feet, I suddenly heard singing. And I looked up at John and he is so sick and he is so generally unwell 
that just the walk to the end of the hallway completely did him in. He had to sit down on a bench and let the sunshine come through the window so he could feel the sun on his skin. And that winded him. Just the walk to the end of the hallway, which was a short walk, winded him. And so I said, just sit here on the bench. If I have to get a wheelchair, I will. You know, we'll make our way back. And so that's the condition he's in. And yet, as I was putting on his socks, he was singing. And I was amazed. I've told you many stories through the years about John and his positive attitude regardless of the circumstances. But he was singing. He was happy. He was going for a walk with his friend. And despite his condition, he was happy. So I said, do you want me to get a wheelchair or do you want to walk back to your room? And he said, no, I want to try to walk, which walking is kind of shuffling along next to me at this point and hanging on to my arm. So we walked him back to the room. And as we were walking, he said, when I get back to the room, will you help me get in bed? I need to go back to bed because he was sitting in a chair when I got there. So I said, sure, you know, and I set him up in the chair and took his socks off and did all that stuff and then put him in bed. And he said, thank you, over and over. And I said, it's nothing. All, all I've done is come see you and take a walk, get you some gum. It's fine, John. He was grateful, and he was singing, and he was happy in the midst of all that. And it reminded me, yet again, of where John finds his strength. In the midst of all that, he put me to shame. I mean, I'm feeling bad about being there. I'm in a hospital for a couple of hours. I feel lousy. I'm seeing sick people. I want to get out of there as fast as I can. And yet John is showing me joy. <laughs> so last night I said to my daughter, this was the part that got Alex. That's a warning, just in case there are any dry eyes left in the place. I said, you know what? I've known John for 25 years. John's 64 years old, I believe. I said, do you realize that he's never seen anything? And so as a consequence, whenever I talk to him, he asks a lot of questions because he doesn't know what things are. And he doesn't know particular words that have to do with things that you would only know by seeing them. He doesn't know that when he rides in the car that there are things whizzing past him. He's never seen a cloud. He's never seen a tree or a flower. He doesn't, he doesn't know what color the sky is. And so jokes like, what color is the sky in your world, are completely lost on him. I said to my daughter last night, he's never seen anything which means now that his body is slowly dilapidating and now that he's facing the reality of his own mortality, do you realize that when he dies, the first thing he will ever see is angels taking him to glory? That'll be the first thing he ever sees. The first thing he ever looks at is going to be the face of Jesus. And suddenly I envied him. <laughs> I thought, I've seen so much in my life. I've seen things I'd like to get out of my memory. I've seen things that I would rather have not seen. And John, in his innocence, 
in his joy in the midst of pain, in his singing, in his hospitalization, he'll get to see Jesus. And that made me feel good. So Alex said, I need to tell you. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's my John story. You know, what we believe here at GCA about God's absolute sovereignty is a great comfort at this particular point in history. In two days, America is going to elect a new president. Hopefully, it won't drag on longer than Tuesday. But we're going to elect a new leader of the free world. I don't do politics from the pulpit. I don't think either of these leaders is a really good choice. Most of the people will be voting against the other person. And so uh, we believe that God is wholly and completely in charge of whatever happens in his world and in his universe. We've seen it time and time again from the Bible. And this week, I talked to a couple of very Arminian people. And do you know what they're doing? They're stockpiling canned goods and getting ready because they believe whoever is voted in, there's going to be riots. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, I lived through Y2K. I remember when everybody thought the world was going to end. People were stockpiling and getting ready and moving to caves and thinking the electricity and the water and everything was going to go off. Well, now people are thinking, you know, if so-and-so gets elected, it's going to be the end of the nation as we know it. This is the most critical election of our lifetime. Okay, I'm old enough to remember several most important elections of our lifetime. I remember the Jimmy Carter years. I remember the Reagan years when H.W. Bush was beaten by uh, Clinton the first, who may become our new first lady. Um, uh, gender identification, that's what that is. Yeah. I remember at the time I was working over in Franklin, and when I heard that Clinton had won, I was aghast. I thought, oh, there it is, the most important election of our lifetime, and we've elected this guy. And, and you know what? I'm going to tell you something honest here. Uh, the second term of Ronald Reagan, when he ran for his second term, his slogan was, are you better off than you were four years ago? And he won in a landslide. Because for the most part, people could say, yes, I'm better off than I was four years ago. So then Clinton was elected. And you know what? When he was elected, I was working a terrible job in Franklin, making terrible money. And four years later, if Clinton had run again saying, are you better off than you were four years ago? I'd have had to say, yeah, yeah, I am. Because over the course of those four years, I worked. I worked really hard, and I worked my way up, and I got to a better job, and I got to a better station in life, and uh, so I was just better off. But you know what? That happened while a, a Democrat I didn't agree with was in the White House. Here's what I have discovered in my 61 years of life. Whoever the president becomes, whoever that is, 
God's in control. And these Arminians were wringing their hands and stockpiling food and predicting riots. And, oh, what are we going to do? And I asked them to their face, where's your God? Don't you believe that God's in control? Don't you believe that these things that he has predicted have to come to pass? And if he's going to bring these things to pass through Hillary Clinton, then that's what he's going to do. And if he's going to bring these things to pass through Donald Trump, then that's what he's going to do. But either way, regardless of who becomes the next president, our God will protect his people. He always has and he always will. And I'm not thrilled about either of the candidates. I'm sorry that I can't go running to the polling place saying, I can't wait to pull the lever for this person because I'm so enwrapped with them. They look like such a good leader. Can't do that this time around. So either way, we're just going to see more and more of what God has said he is going to do coming to pass because we know what the end is. So all I'm trying to tell you is if we really believe what we say we believe, we walk around saying God's in control. I've got a pin I wear on my lapel that says our God reigns. I am convinced by everything I see in the Bible that God's in control no matter what happens. I tell you all the time he's in charge of the minutia. Birds can't fall from the sky without him. The lot is cast into the lap, and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. If we're convinced that he's in control of everything that happens on this planet, then we don't worry. We're not scared because God will provide for his people as the world continues to unravel. And the world will continue to unravel because that's what the Bible says. So how often have you heard me say, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse? Well, that's it. Cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. But God's in control, and I trust him, and he's taken care of me for lo, all these many years and these various different presidents and these different administrations and... uh, I thought it was all over eight years ago when Obama came in. And you know what? Eight years later, I'm fine. You know, life roils and reels and things happen. But in the end, we're fine. Because God takes care of his people. You got it? Got it. Am I the only one who believes this? No. Okay. 1 Corinthians 10. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul beginning to warn the Corinthians, and he's going to complete his warning toward the end of this chapter. He's warning them against falling into the kinds of attitudes and the type of idolatry and the type of unsavory behavior that the forefathers of Israel had fallen into. And he says twice in this chapter, these things were written for us, for our learning, for our admonition, so that we can learn what kind of God we're dealing with. And if God has so punished the children of Israel for having these kinds of attitudes and doing these kinds of things, and if God never changes, 
well, then the church certainly ought not to do those things. We certainly ought not grieve the Holy Spirit, and we ought not be testing God and thinking, well, God is gracious, and he sent his son, and his son died for us, and our sins are paid for, and therefore, since sin isn't a problem for me anymore, I can just live any old way I want. Paul keeps saying repeatedly, no, God still expects you to respond to him with the kind of worship, with the kind of praise, and with the kind of right behavior that he has called you to. And so he is giving several different Old Testament examples. We looked at a couple of them last week. We're going to look at a few more this week. And then Paul's going to say, so don't be idol worshipers and don't act immorally. And then finally say, there's nothing taken you. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, there is no temptation taking you except that which is common to man. This has always been the way it is. As long as there have been people on the planet, they have been tempted to sin. They have been tempted to resort back to their old ways. As long as there's ever been people, as soon as there were four people on the planet, according to the book of Genesis, Cain slew Abel. There has always been sin in the land, but there is no temptation taken you except that which is common to man. And Paul says, but God is faithful. Which really kind of fits with what I just said. There's nothing happening here right now that hasn't happened before. We're reminded often that Paul was writing at a time when the Roman Empire was very corrupt, and yet God protected his own. You can go back before that and look at the Middle East, and you can see these kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and what we've been talking about on Wednesday night. And These were terrible kingdoms and terrible leadership and armies that were killing and destroying and even destroying the cedars of Lebanon and frightening the animals and all of this kind of stuff, and yet God protected his own. So throughout history, we see God being faithful to his people no matter what. And so Paul's going to say it again. There's nothing that you've encountered in your life that isn't part of the human experience, but God is faithful. So let's start at chapter 10, verse 1. That was all introduction. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. He's reminding them of these things that Israel went through so that nobody can say, I didn't know, you didn't tell me. Nobody ever told me or warned me what God was like. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And that takes us to verse 8. 
That's where we left off last week. So Paul is very clear. Paul's very adamant. These things were written down in the Old Testament for our examples. So we can look at Israel, we can look how they behaved, and we can look at how God responded, and we can get a clear indication of what God is in favor of and what God is clearly against. And then we're supposed to respond accordingly. Idolatry is going to come up several times in this chapter because in Corinth there were lots of temples to lots of idols. And Paul is saying that we as Christians should be different. And that once people who were idolaters came to Christ, that they had to give up their idolatry and worship only Christ. And that's going to be thematic as we go through this chapter. Starting at verse 8, do not let us act immorally. He's talking about sexual sins here. And there were a great many sexual sins in Corinth. Temple prostitutes and all kinds of uh, ill-gotten gain. I'll just leave it at that. Going on all over Corinth. Which is why I told you in the introduction to the book of Corinth that prostitutes were even known as Corinthian girls because the city of Corinth was so well known for all the debauchery that happened in that city. And so Paul has to tell people, don't be like that. Change your behavior. Bring it into conformity with what you say you believe. Nor let us act immorally as some of them. Who's the them there? That's our forefathers in Israel. Some of them acted immorally, and 23,000 fell in one day. Are you familiar with that story? Paul, for the next three things he's going to bring up, is going to go to the book of Numbers, and he's sort of going to work backwards through the book of Numbers. Turn to Numbers 25, and I'll show you that story. This is right on the heels of the story of Balaam, Balaam and Balak, Balaam and his talking donkey, Balaam who got upset with his donkey and finally his donkey turned to him and said, hey, enough with the beatings. I've carried you all these years. Haven't I been your donkey? When did I ever do this to you before? I can't help it since we're talking about Balaam's donkey for a moment. You know that in the King James Version, a donkey is referred to as an ass, and there's nothing unclean about that. Elder Ward used to say, in the Bible, it's a miracle when an ass speaks. In real life, it's a miracle if he doesn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. We're in Numbers 25. Everybody there? I've given you enough time to get there. Numbers 25, starting at verse 1, on the advice of Balaam, since Balak was trying to trip up the children of Israel, and every time that he went to curse the children of Israel, what Balaam did was bless them. And he ended up telling Balak, I can't do anything but what God tells me to do, and God keeps blessing them, so I have to keep speaking blessings over them. But then Balak figures out, well, if I just send some attractive people in there, then the men are going to be attracted to the women and we can sideline them towards idolatry. And that's what happened, starting at Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, 
the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. So that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses told the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping in the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, he took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and he pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, both through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague was 24,000. So uh, God does not take that whole idolatry thing very well. He wants all the worship. He expects all the worship. His very first commandment, not a suggestion, his first commandment was, you'll have no other gods before me. I'm the only one. And yet the children of Israel, the children who he chose for himself, joined themselves to Baal Peor, and God started killing people. Now, you may have noticed that there's a difference between what the book of Numbers says, Moses cumulatively says that there were 24,000 killed in this whole event, and Paul says there were 23,000. And so that has caused some folks to say, well, that's a contradiction in the Bible. And I looked at several different commentaries, and the commentary I liked the best was John Gill's exposition of the Bible, his explanation of this difference. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, and fell in one day, three and 20,000. The number is then said to be 20 and 4,000. And so say all three Targums in that place and both the Talmuds and others. And on the other hand, all the Greek copies of the epistle of the book of Corinth and all the Oriental versions agree that the number is 20 and 3,000 so that it does not appear to be a mistake of copies, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. So to reconcile this matter, or at least to abate the difficulties of it, let the following things be observed. First of all, the apostle does not write as a historian, and so not with the exactness that Moses did. And besides, he does not say that there fell only three and 20,000, this being the lesser number and contained in the greater. Moreover, Moses and the apostles used different words in their accounts, but Moses said that there died so many 
because he included the people who were the heads of the congregation. I'm, I'm editing real quick here. Moses said that there died so many, including the heads of the people that were hanged up in the sun, and they all perished then by the sword. That's a different group. And then the apostle says that there fell only such a number, referring only to the latter. That's why I was trying to edit to try to make it clear. What he's saying is Paul only included the ones who died by the sword. Moses was told also kill all the leaders. So Moses' cumulative number would have been closer to 24,000. But those that were actually killed by the sword in the one day, because Paul's very specific to delineate one day, were 23,000. So there's not actually a conflict between the two. Gilla goes on to say, Now the heads of the people that suffered the first kind of death might, as is very probable, be around 1,000. And they that died the other way were 20 and 3,000. Which makes the sums of both 24,000 to agree and both are expressed by Moses under the general name of a plague or a stroke. To all this, the apostle uses a limiting clause, which Moses does not. And he says that three and 20,000 fell in one day. So that is very likely the end of it, that the heads of the people, supposed to be about a 1,000, were hanged up in the day under the hot sun, and the 23,000 fell by the sword. They died next after the leaders, which the apostle only takes notice of the 23,000. So I only read through that to say there's a perfectly rational and logical explanation for the difference between the numbers and for all the people out there who might say, well, there's a difference in the numbers, and that shows that the Bible is not the word of God or else you wouldn't find this kind of conflict. Those people simply haven't done their historical research. That's the whole point of that. If you don't remember the details, just remember there is an answer. Okay? Turn to Numbers 21, 5 to 9. The next thing that Paul brings up is, don't try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Do you understand what it means to try the Lord? Here, I'll give you a good example. I hope it's a good example. I have said many, many times, and I firmly believe that you are bulletproof until God's done with you, that you will live for as long as God wants you to live. And then when it's time for you to die, no doctor can save you. These things are foreordained by God. That's God's domain. Mankind can do nothing about it. But I do not want you to run outside and play in traffic when there's a bus coming because Pastor Jim said you're bulletproof. Okay? Because that would be to test or try the Lord. Okay, I know it's up to God how long I'm supposed to live. I'm going to test that theory and then throw yourself in front of a bus. That would be testing the Lord. Theologically, it would be to say, I know this is what's written. I'm saved. My sins are washed away. Jesus did it all. I know that. Therefore, I'm going to go play around with every sin I can find just to kind of find out how true that really is. How far can you push this sin thing and still be saved? Well, that would be to test the Lord. 
So you got the idea? So Paul says, don't test God and reminds his listeners in Corinth of what God did when the children of Israel tried to test God. And what was God's answer? He sent poisonous snakes into the camp and people died. Let's read it. Starting in Numbers 21, verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food, and there is no water, and my soul loathes this miserable food, this light bread. So God's giving them manna every day. All they got to do to eat is walk outside. They put no effort into it whatsoever. God has provided for them and did provide for 40 years. Every day, manna comes down from the sky. Not on the Sabbath, as we talked about last week, but God provided for them. God gave them water out of a rock. And yet, they reached the point of testing God, of trying God, and saying, Well, I know what you've done. It was better when we were back in Egypt, when we were slaves. At least we had food we could eat there. You brought us out here into the wilderness to starve us to death. Now, granted, you're giving us food every day, but I'm sick of that food you give me every day. And so my soul has grown to loathe the light bread. And so I've concluded that what you plan to do was take us out here into the wilderness to kill us with no food, no water. God's providing food and he's providing water and they're complaining that they don't like the food. Okay, that's what it is to test the Lord. Every one of you in this room, God has provided for you abundantly. You have so much stuff. He has provided for you way above and beyond. As I've often said, the only thing you're promised in the Bible is some food to eat and something to put on your body. To the children of Israel, that was go find food every single day and usually one cloak, usually one set of clothing. And that was God's promise. Food And something to cover your body, I promise you I'll give you that. Okay, everybody in this room not only did not have to go find food. Nobody went out foraging this morning and driving through McDonald's doesn't count. (laughs) Nobody went out and killed an animal this morning and skinned it and cooked it. And nobody went out and had to beat the grain so that they could make some bread. Everybody here had plenty of food today. And everybody in this room has at least one set of clothes. And most of you have more clothes than you know what to do with. You've got clothes in closets. You've got clothes in boxes. You've got, you've got clothes that you take out for summer and clothes you take out for winter. You, you've got seasonal clothes. You've got so many clothes. So God has blessed you abundantly. On top of that, you've got a place to live, and you've got a car to drive, and you've got carpet, and you've got air conditioning, and you've got, you've got so, so much. And yet, I guarantee you that every one of you have heard yourself complain at some point. Shame on us. Shame on us forever complaining. Well, he's going to get to that. He's going to get to them mumbling and grumbling and whining against Moses. But but it is, according to Paul, it is testing the Lord when he is provided so graciously, so abundantly for you. And you go back and say, more, 
I want more. I'm not satisfied with what you want for me. I want things for me, and you haven't given those to me. So here's what happened. The people spoke against Moses and against God, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food? And so the Lord sent fiery serpents, that means poisonous snakes, among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, you think? God has called you out. He's delivered you from Egypt. Remember that whole Red Sea parting thing? I mean, God is with you. He has a plan, and he has promised you. By a one-sided covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he promised you he's going to take you to that land, and he's going to give you that land. How is it that you don't believe him? So the people grumble against God and against Moses. They don't like the food they're being provided with and even have the nerve to say, we're starving. You brought us out here to starve us to death. You're getting free food every day. Yeah, but I don't like that food. I'm going to starve to death instead because I don't like the way God's providing. So God sends fiery serpents to change their attitude, and they come back to Moses and go, um, we've sinned. We'd rather not die. We'd rather not have the fiery serpents. We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So intercede with the Lord that he may remove these serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked on the bronze serpent, he lives. Now, of course, we've talked about this just recently in our Wednesday night studies, that eventually the children of Israel, prone as they were to worshiping all sorts of things, they began worshiping the brass serpent rather than the God who provided them the means of their healing, rather than worship the God who had delivered them from Egypt and given them food every day, they ended up worshiping the bronze serpent, until it was called Nahashtan, a thing of brass and destroyed by Hezekiah, I do believe. So here's the lesson. Here's what Paul's trying to tell the church at Corinth and trying to tell us. God has provided for you. God has given you plenty. And yet it is our nature to start thinking that we just don't have it good enough. And we complain about it. And he says that is a way of testing God. Do not test the Lord. After all, you've got your example. The children of Israel tested God, and God started killing people. Now, also, since we're talking about the bronze serpent, Jesus likened himself to the bronze serpent. As we saw last week with the rock, there were all these types of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus made the one-for-one correlation that the same way that the people would come and gaze upon the bronze serpent and then they would be healed of the thing that was killing them. And by the way, the thing that was killing them was serpents. 
and the thing that was raised up on the pole was the serpent that was killing them, the same way that Christ was raised up on a pole and became sin for us. He became the very thing that's killing us. And then everybody who gazed on the serpent, everyone who looks to Christ, is healed of the thing that's killing them. And so Christ himself said that he had to be lifted up and he would draw all men to himself. So even back here in the midst of God's punishment of Israel, he's teaching them. He's showing them who to look to, who to run to. He's teaching that there is an intercessor who will be able to bear the very thing that's destroying them. Paul's not done. Paul has already said, with most of the children of Israel, God was not well pleased. So don't crave evil things and don't be idolaters and don't act immorally and don't try the Lord. In verse 10, he says, and don't grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Anybody here want to say you've ever caught yourself grumbling Everybody better raise their hands. I better see every hand in this place raised. I know we're not Pentecostals here and you don't like to raise your hands. But we all grumble. We do it so naturally. We're so sure that whatever is going on in our life just isn't what should be going on in our life. We grumble especially if some hardship comes our way. Like it's a strange thing. Like it's a foreign thing that hardship should come to us. I've told you again many, many times. I'm repeating myself a lot this morning. But I hear people ask that question, why me? And the proper answer is, why not you? Why are you any different than everybody else? And God in his sovereignty, in his control, in his knowing what he's doing, needs to take you through this thing for his purposes, for his glory, and for your good. So Paul says, do not grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Go back in the book of Numbers. Keep going backwards. Go to number 16. And we're going to go back to the grumbling part, and we'll see how God reacted to that. Are you getting a feel for this yet? That Paul is citing particular instances where the children of Israel did each of these things, and in every case, God punished them. In every case, God killed people. Every time that the children of Israel weren't content, weren't satisfied to say God is in control and God knows what he's doing, then God had to prove that he was in control and he did know what he was doing. And he did it a hard, hard way. And so you would think that smart people would eventually figure it out and just stop it. Because it doesn't go good for you. It doesn't help you. You don't become a better person. Have you ever been around somebody who just never happy? Grumbling all the time. Never content. Aren't they fun to be around? (laughs) Don't you enjoy it? Go seek them out. Come to my party. You'll bring everybody down. Come on. (laughs) Grumbling people, never happy. Okay, everybody in number 16. 
On the next day, all the congregation, this is verse 41. I don't think I said that. Number 16, verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. Okay, now let's think about this for just a moment. Moses and Aaron were chosen by God. God specifically put them into leadership roles. God chose them specifically to lead the children of Israel. And what did the children of Israel do? They started thinking, you know, I'm not that thrilled with Moses and Aaron. Maybe we should just choose a new leader. Yeah, God said these are the leaders, but, you know, I don't care for the way Moses dresses. I don't care for his hair. You know, he married an Ethiopian woman. Not real thrilled with that whole Moses thing. Chapter 16 is right on the heels of Korah's rebellion. This is after God has already done things like opening up the earth and swallowing people. If the earth opened up right now and Jean 2 disappeared down into the abyss, boom, gone. Everybody in this room is going to straighten up. Everybody is going to go, yes, absolutely. I don't want that. Not that. God has just shown, demonstrated among the children of Israel that he is willing to punish sin. And yet they're still grumbling against the leadership. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Okay, so after this has happened, after God has punished them, their view of it is not get in line, recognize who God is, worship God. Their attitude is, I need somebody to blame. There are people dying in the camp, and it's Moses' fault. It's Aaron's fault. We don't like this leadership anymore. So they grumbled against the way God was doing things. And it came about, verse 42, however, that when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron came in front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I might consume them instantly." That's God's reaction. I'm not happy. God's answer is, you don't like what I've done? You don't like the way I do things? You don't like my plan? He says to Moses and Aaron, get out of my way. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to destroy them all. Now, granted, I think he was teaching Moses and Aaron something about intercession in the process but I really do believe that at that point God meant it when he said get out of the way let me at him he was angry he was angry get away from this congregation that I am that I may consume them instantly and then they Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and Moses said to Aaron take your censer and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation, and make atoning, make covering for them. For the wrath has gone forth from the Lord, and the plague has begun. 
And then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague was among the people. That means people are already dying. So he put on the incense, and he made atonement for the people, and he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. And then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting because the plague had been checked. And then you know what God did just to make it clear who the leaders were? Chapter 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, all those whiners, all those complainers, all those grumblers, speak to them and get from them a rod for each of the father's households. 12 rods from all their leaders according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. And there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. So God's going to make clear who he's chosen. He says these people who don't like the leadership that I've set up, that them each take a rod for their own household and write their name on it. And I'm going to show who I've chosen. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony, that means in front of the Ark of the Covenant, where I meet with you. And it shall come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Okay, these are dead sticks. Everybody's got a dead stick. A walking stick. They've been carrying it through the wilderness, through the desert. And Moses says, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to lay all 12 sticks. They don't like the leadership. They're the leaders of each of the tribes. I'm going to pick a leader. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to make the dead stick of the leader I've chosen live again. That's impossible. No person can do that. So God's going to show who his leader is. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony where I meet with you and it shall come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout and then I shall lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel who are grumbling against you. Moses therefore spoke to the sons of Israel and all their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader, according to their father's household, 12 rods, with the rod of Aaron among the rods. So Moses deposited the rods before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. And now it came about on the next day that Moses went into the tent of testimony, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and formed buds and blossoms and bore ripe almonds. That was fast. It didn't just come alive. It came alive and became fruitful. Pretty obvious evidence, I would say. Moses then went out and took all the rods from the presence of the Lord to all the sons of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. But the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony, to be kept as a sign against the rebels that you may put an end to their grumbling against me so that they shall not die. Okay, so here's God's answer to all this. You take the rod that budded 
that is clearly my miraculous intervention and my choosing the man that I will have lead the children of Israel. You take that rod and you lay it up right next to the Ark of the Covenant. And in the future, when people grumble that I've chosen the tribe of Levi, when people complain that I chose Moses and Aaron, you take them back to this stick. And you say, you want to fight with that? You want to argue with God who brought a dead stick back to life? It will finally stop the grumbling. Now, what this shows you is, since God said, show them the stick so that I don't kill them, what it shows you is that God is willing to kill people over their grumbling, but then he provided. He provided a way to make it clear what leadership he had chosen for those children, and then he left it as an example so that he wouldn't have to kill people for their grumbling, and there'd be no more grumbling in the camp. That was the plan. Paul knows all that. That is essential to everything Paul knows about the history of the children of Israel. And so, back to Corinthians... And so he tells the people in Corinth, don't grumble because God kills people who grumble because he is the provision, because he has provided for you. He has provided for you, in fact, things he never provided for the children of Israel. The children of Israel didn't have the Savior, didn't have the Holy Spirit interceding for them and taking their prayers before God on their behalf. They left to themselves without the Spirit of God, given a law that they had to follow, given commandments that they had to follow, given 613 rules that they had to satisfy constantly and continually, God was still angry with them for their grumbling. How much better do you have it? You have this greater revelation of God. You've got the Spirit of God inside you. You've got the finished work of Christ guaranteeing your eternity. And you've got God who has blessed you abundantly. So on what basis can you grumble about anything? And that's Paul's point. So let's sum it all up. God was not well pleased with those children of Israel and they were laid low in the wilderness. These things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved and do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. And don't grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. When God put the plague on them, the destroyer was let loose, and they were dying until Aaron interceded among the living and the dead. So do you get all those rules? Those are Christian rules. Those are New Testament rules. They're Old Testament examples, but they're New Testament rules. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to be like the world. The unhappy and grumbling, never content, idolatrous world. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be people who are thankful, people who are full of gratitude, and people who recognize that whatever we go through, this is God's plan for us. And so Paul says this. Now, these things happened to them 
as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Have you ever encountered anybody, and I know I have a few times, I can point fingers and name names. Um, have you ever encountered anybody who was so sure in their theological outlook that they were willing to kind of um, become haughty in their sureness, and because of their haughtiness and their sureness, they played around the edges of sin? I see heads nodding. Yeah, we've all known people like that. Well, I'm a Christian. I'll give you an example. He's dead now, so it's okay. I won't tell you the name, but I worked for a man in Brentwood many years ago who one day came to me and asked me to sign off on a, on a PO that uh, something he was going to purchase, and he was going to purchase it at the corporation's expense, but it was for his car. It was a new stereo for his car. And he wanted the corporation to pay for it. And since he couldn't sign off on it himself, he wanted me to sign off for it. And he was my boss. And I said, no. I said, this, this doesn't work for me. I'm not going to put my name on it because someday when it's discovered, they're going to ask me why I would sign such a thing. And so, no, I won't do it. And it's dishonest. And I, as a Christian person, cannot be participant in this kind of dishonesty. And he said to me something I have not forgotten to this day. He said, well, now this was a Presbyterian fellow, I have to add. <laughs> I wasn't pointing that at anybody. I was just saying it very generally. He said, well, I'm saved and Jesus died, so it doesn't matter what I do. I said, yes, it does. It matters what you do. And I said, if you're convinced it doesn't matter what you do, I'm convinced it matters what I do. So I'm not going to sign that. So anyway, that was that argument. Because I have met people who actually, in their Christian theological haughtiness, think that it doesn't matter how you live. And here is Paul putting down a list and saying to the people in Corinth, and I think to us even here today, saying, look, God is not happy when you don't recognize that he's got this. He is in control of this. He has decided these things in advance, and this is the life that he has decided for you. Be thankful for it. Be grateful for it. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't get involved in idol worship. Don't be immoral. Be people who reflect the fact that you have been called by God and been raised up to new life by Christ. Be different than the world. And don't get so haughty that you think you're standing because I think you're going to fall. Because God's got a long, long history here of people who thought they were standing. Hey, we're getting bread every day, but we're not happy with that bread. Hey, we're being led by Moses, but we're not happy with Moses. They're grumbling. They're complaining. We need water, more water. You brought us out here into the desert to kill us. These are people who think they know what they're talking about. And they fell. And so the warning is, be careful if you think you stand. 
Because if you think you stand in your own righteousness, in your own theology, in your own wisdom, in your own cleverness, in how well you've got this whole Christian thing figured out, if you think you're the one that's standing, God's going to take you down. Because that's a source of pride at some point. It's a source of arrogance at some point where you're saying, I know better than the eternal one. And he will teach you that you don't. I deserve more. I deserve more. I won't tell stories, but I've heard that word, I deserve so much. I don't deserve this. We've all heard that, right? I don't deserve this. The answer is, yes, you do. And you know my proof that you do? If you didn't deserve it, you wouldn't have it. It wouldn't be happening to you. But you do deserve it. And it's teaching you something. It's either taking you down or it's bringing you closer to God. My prayer is it's bringing you closer to God. And so Paul's conclusion is, verse 13, there is no trial, no temptation that is overtaken you, but such as is common to mankind. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So yeah, trials are going to come, temptations are going to come, hardships are going to come in your life. That's human life. Has anybody met anybody yet that's never suffered? Has anybody met anybody yet that has no hardships in their life? Because I'd love to meet one. You know, I used to say, when people would say, how are you? I used to say, "Eh, pretty reasonable. And one day, a fellow said to me, hi, how are you? And I had just met him, and I said, I'm reasonable. And he said, I am so glad to meet a reasonable man. I've been looking for you all my life. There are no people who have not struggled, have not suffered, have not gone through hardship in this lifetime. That is what is common to mankind. But God is always, always faithful in the midst of it. And you're going through it in order to teach you something, in order to drive you to your knees, in order to correct your way of living or stop your grumbling or get you away from your idols or stop your lascivious living. It's always, if you belong to God, it is always for your good that God's punishing you. I'll say it this way. When are you more fervent in your prayers? When everything's good or when everything's hard? And God knows that. He knows how he made you. He knows what you're like. He knows that the way to drive you to your knees is through hardship. Because there's nobody fervently coming to God, praying for deliverance when everything's great. When it's good, you're busy thinking you did it. You're busy thinking, yeah, I've got the formula. I've worked this out. No, but you will pray to God and you will recognize who God is and you will cry out to God when you go through difficulties. And he knows that. So he will use the difficulties to bring you to the place that he intends for you to be. 
And that's the way he works time and time again in the Bible. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. And he will, with the temptation, that's a real key phrase, the reason that people so often give for the things that they do, for their grumbling, for their idolatry, for their lascivious lives, the reason that they give time and time again is, well, I was tempted. And I was tempted beyond what I was able to contain. I was tempted, and that temptation took a hold of me, and it was so strong I couldn't do anything except act on it. And God says, there is no temptation taken you, but such is common Because God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. I do this over and over, so I'm going to do it one more time. That clock's an hour fast, right? Because there's no way I've been talking that long. I've been talking a long time, but I just looked up at the clock, and I suddenly realized daylight savings. How many of you have ever gone through a situation where you said, this is going to kill me? Raise your hand. That's every hand in the joint. Okay. How many of you died? Raise your hand. (laughs) A couple of wise guys in the crowd. No, you thought it was going to kill you. You thought it was more than you could take. You thought you were right at the edge. I can't take anymore. God, deliver me. This is terrible. This is going to kill me. He knew it wouldn't. He knew how far he could push it. And then he knew how to bring you back and how to restore you. And then I guarantee you, and everybody in this room is going to agree with this statement, I guarantee you when you got through it, your faith was improved. Because you realized he was faithful to you. Because God is faithful. You're not. He is. And he will not tempt you beyond that which you are able, but he will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Look, if you know there's a way of escape, if you know there's a way out, that makes the rest of it endurable. You can get through it because you know this is going to end. There's a way out of this. So the next time you're tried, the next time you're in a temptation, the next time you're struggling, Don't concentrate on the temptation. That's what everybody does. They concentrate on the circumstances. They concentrate on how bad they've got it. Instead, look for the escape. You have a firm word from God right here that the escape exists. There will be an escape. It is coming. He is faithful. He will bring you through it. I don't know what to say beyond that. The word of God convicted me this morning. I feel less grumbly even now. But I hope that you recognize that Paul is telling the children of Corinth, the people of Corinth who say that they are believers, he is telling the church, well then, act like people who have been saved and been redeemed. Act like people who have been given not only magnificent spiritual eternal gifts, but people who God has provided for time and time again. Stop your grumbling. Become thankful people. Become grateful people. Be different than the whole rest of the world. And no matter what comes your way, God's got it because he's faithful. That's the lesson this morning. So however you vote on Tuesday, God's got it. When we wake up on Wednesday and find out who the new president is, God's got it. 
Whoever they are, they'll be gone in four years. Eight at the most. You know. And I'm not looking for the next guy to fix anything or gal. I'm not looking for the next president to fix anything. I'm looking for Jesus to come back. I'm looking for the king of kings to rule and reign. And that's when there will finally be peace on this planet. And not before. Don't expect anything else. Put all your expectation, all your hope in Christ. And that will carry you through the trials and the temptations of the next few days. Got it? I'm glad. (laughs) Well, then I need to let you go. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.